Hey, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, We'll be in the book of Acts um, up until um, Advent season uh, over Christmas, and then we'll take a little bit of break, and then in January we'll start in Acts again. We're going to cover the entire book, and we're going to be doing it a chapter at a time. And so if you want to keep up along the way or maybe even read ahead of time, you can. It will be very easy to predict. You just read the next chapter after the one we covered today and you can be kind of up to speed with where we are going. So Acts chapter three, starting in verse one, says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his eyes, uh, his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw, uh, saw him walking and praised God and recognized him as the one who set the beautiful gate of the, peep, of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when we had decided to release him. But you you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and now and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the miraculous moments in scripture. Those moments when you bring people from from unhealth to health. Those moments when you restore those who are broken. And Lord, I know that there are many... um, many of us struggling with our own physical ailments here this morning. And so, Lord, we we pray for your grace on our lives. And Lord, thank you for this moment in Scripture that you point not only to your power to overcome our ailments, but you point to the real direction for the miracles, and that's to your Son. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up your Scripture and we read your Word, you would open up our hearts so we can see what you're trying to communicate through the miracles you performed in this book. We love you. We lift up this time to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love moments in Scripture like this because they challenge me. 
And they challenged me in this way. Kevin, what's your answer to the miracles of Scripture? Kevin, when you see the miraculous in Scripture, what is your position? What do you think is happening in these moments? And I think the same is true with you. Um, well, what do you do with the miraculous in Scripture? In fact, our whole faith is based on one big miracle. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you really can't be a Christian without believing in the miracles. You have to believe that that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he was resurrected, that he was dead and became alive. So our faith is based on a miracle. In fact, Paul will say it this way. uh, If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are to be most pitied among all people. And so we should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There's a reality that, that the miracles matter, but the miracles, uh, they're a little bit challenging to us. What do we do with it? Especially in our modernistic culture, because in our modernistic, naturalistic, realistic culture, uh, the, the belief in miracles has seemed to seem to be something of the, of the past. It's something that they believed back then. I mean, they, they attributed every healing to miracles. And, and if there's something bad that happened, they would say, wasn't that the tree fairies? Like there was, there was that sort of mythical, mythological idea. But is that true? Did, did they actually believe that? And if you haven't been confronted with the issue of answering miracles yet, uh, you will be. And it really doesn't even matter your age. I was having a conversation with my 10-year-old son this week. And he's in school. He goes to a public school. And so he was having a conversation with a kid in his class there during art class. And, and some, somehow the conversation came up of, are you a Christian? And, and, and he said, yes, I, I believe in, 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 in that. And, and this kid said to him, um, well, you know, those are all fairy stories. Those are all fairy tales. And that's just reality. And that shouldn't surprise you. Uh, I remember when I was in seventh grade, I believed that, so I, I didn't end up by monks for the purpose of making people live a good life. And so I, I didn't believe in that this was real. I didn't believe these events actually happened. I w- went, had to go through my own Christ of faith. What do I do with the writings of scripture? What do I do with these miracles? I remember what, as a youth pastor, there was a girl in high school that I had a conversation with, and she, she said, what makes this book more realistic than Harry Potter? Like, why should I believe this more than the writings of Harry Potter? And if you haven't been challenged with those questions yet, um, I'm surprised, because <laughs> just the world that we live in, uh, we are all challenged with these moments, these realities. The question is not, what, why are there challenges? The question is this, how do we respond to the challenges? How do we respond to those challenges of faith? And, and another, another part of this is this, how do you respond to the reality of miracles in the scripture? And how do you respond when God doesn't heal always in the ways that we hope he would heal like he does in scripture. How do we respond to the reality of miracles and how do we respond when God doesn't always heal in the ways that we would hope? Now, if I haven't built up enough tension yet, um, I don't know what else I could do because this can be a real challenge for us in our faith. And so the question is this, what what do we do with the miracles of the Bible? And that's really the issue that Peter is going to talk about in this text. And what we see in, in Scripture, in the book of Acts, there, there are roughly 14 miracles that occur. Um, they, they occur in a variety of different ways. But every miracle in the book of Acts, and every miracle in the Scriptures, actually point to a greater end beyond the miracle itself. 
So there's three pieces I want to show you from this text that miracles point us towards. The first is this, they direct our eyes upward. Secondly, the miracles cause us to evaluate our heart inward. And thirdly, they direct our hope forward. So they direct our eyes upward. They help us evaluate our heart inward and they direct our hope forward. So what is the setting? What is happening in this situation? Well, well, in Acts 2.42, it says something amazing that's happening in the early church. Uh, Amazing things are happening. The Holy Spirit had fallen on these people in a unique way. They began speaking in a variety of languages. People are coming to faith and people are dedicating themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and to the learning of the scripture and to breaking bread together. It is an amazing environment that they are in. And as they're dedicating themselves, it says miracles are happening. And Acts chapter three is in many ways an example of the miracles that were happening at the hands of the apostles. And as these miracles are happening, there's something significant that happens in this moment. You see Peter take this opportunity in this miracle to point to something significant. And it says that in this moment, there's a man, uh, Peter and John were going to the temple at that hour, and there was a man who was lame from birth being carried. This is, this is the setting of the situation. The, the setting is this, there's a man lame from birth, and he's at the temple of beautiful, uh, called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. There's debate on where this exact location is in regards to the temple, uh, but it's likely between uh, the court of, of Gentiles and the court of, of women, somewhere in there. And, and in their culture, in their day and age, in the first century, they didn't have uh, social security. They didn't have government subsidies. They didn't have the ability for people to care for those that were unable to work, for those that were invalid in their context. And so the only way these people could make money, the only way they could provide for themselves was to literally beg. And so for, for week after week, they would bring this man to this gate and he would sit there and beg for alms every single day. His friends carried him there and he sat there day after day begging on the generosity of others. There was no way for him to provide for himself. And in um, Acts, 2, 40, or Acts 4, it says that this man had been lame for over 40 years. And so this was his state In his state, he was unable to provide for himself. He was never able to walk. So the the miracle is gonna be pretty dramatic. And what's even more fascinating about this individual that you see a little bit later on is that everyone was familiar with this man. Everyone knew him. And so week after week, day after day, over the past 40 years, people would walk by this man as they go in to offer sacrifices or worship in the temple. He was a known person person in this community, a very familiar face. And Peter and John walk by him in this moment. And it says, now seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And so this man does what he always did in this moment. He says, hey, will will you please be generous to me? Would you give me something so that I can eat another day? And so Peter and John came to this man, but they did something very different to this man. They caused him to direct their eyes first at them. But Peter directed his gaze at him. That means he focused on him. He looked at this man. Isn't that interesting? I think oftentimes in in our lives, as we walk by people that have need or people that um, are, are disabled in different ways, oftentimes we don't look at them, we look beyond them. In fact, even as you're driving a to, to work or whatever else. You'll see people with need begging for things and oftentimes we don't look at them, we just look beyond them to our own next 
place, but Peter doesn't. He, he directs his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he, the, the man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, from them. now what did he expect to receive? He expected money. A handout, like, like just, will you, will you help me in this situation? He had no other way to make money. He was looking to be supported by these people. So he's expecting to receive something. And then Peter gives him an answer that was, at first, very unhelpful. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Isn't that interesting? His first answer is, hey, I don't have what you want. What you want is money. What you want is a way to pay for the next meal. What you want is something very tangible that you can put in your hands to take you to the next place. And he says, what you want, I actually don't have. And so often in life, what we think we most need is some tangible thing given to us. That's how we feel most of our needs. In fact, our culture, we believe this, as long as you are physically healthy and financially taken care of, all of your needs are basically met. As long as you're physically healthy and financially cared for, all of your basic needs are are met. And if you don't have one of those, you just kind of look for the other one, right? Well, at least I have a healthy body. At least I have a job. And we kind of put those two things as our primary needs. And he says, I don't have that for you. I don't have that for you in this moment. But what what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, this is amazing. He had been lame for 40 years, and in a moment, you see a complete and total healing. It wasn't over time. It wasn't over weeks or months. This immediate full restoration of his, of his ankles, of his legs. He had not walked and he is leaping. That is incredible. That is amazing. That was authenticating something significant. See, I don't know if you've read your Bible much, but you see that this type of miracle was done by Jesus. There were lame people that were lame from birth that he healed in a moment. And so there's something significant happening in this moment. What's seeing is that the apostles are doing the same miracles that Jesus did. And so there's an authenticating message to this portion of this, of this healing. It's authenticating that, that the same power and work and message of Jesus is being carried on in the apostles. It's authenticating their, their message at one level. But there's a second piece of this. As, they, as he begins leaping and walking and praising God, it says all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. They're like, this is the guy that we've seen there week after week, month after month, year after year. And they were amazed at what happened. In verse 11, and while he clung to Peter and John and the people, they were utterly astonished. And they ran together to them in the portico of Solomon. I mean, everyone's amazed. Everyone's coming together. You healed this guy? What just happened? There's this energy, excitement. And then Peter says something really interesting to kind of silence the excitement. He says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? Which at one level you say, of course we're staring at you. I mean, this guy was lame for his entire life. The entire time I've known this guy, he's been lame. And Peter's like, what are you you looking at us for? And then he says this, 
And why do you wonder or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our piety, we have made him walk? Peter says, why do you look at us like we're powerful? Like, it, like there's some sort of internal power within us. That's really what the word in Greek means. It means, why, why do you look at us like it's, there's something in me that made this happen? Or maybe it's our piety. Maybe it's our faithfulness. Maybe it's just that we have the right religion and the right relationship with God that we made this man walk. Why do you look at us like there's something in me that caused this miracle? And let's be honest, most of us, when we want the miraculous to happen in our own lives, those are the areas we point to. We point to personal power or personal faithfulness. We point to some power within me or we point to some faithfulness in me. In fact, that's often how we even talk to God. Maybe if I live a good enough life, maybe if I'm a good enough person, maybe God will heal me. But Peter kind of dismisses both of those ideas. And, and what he doesn't do next, I think this is so significant, he doesn't start a healing ministry. He doesn't. He doesn't at this moment say, well, hey, if, if you pray this prayer, if you do these steps, I have a new book that's coming out next week. It's gonna be good. I'm gonna go on world tour and uh, how to heal a lame man in 10 easy steps. Pray this prayer, say this thing, do this deal. And by your power and your piety, you can heal people. By your power and your faithfulness, you can re- uh, remove all your wrongs. Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't direct it inward. Where does he direct it? Upward. He doesn't point to himself. He points to Jesus. He points it where it needs to go. He says, why do you assume that it's something within me? Goes on to verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom he, you delivered over to death. He says, the miracles are meant to point to the person of Jesus. See, no miracle is meant to point to the person who did the miracle. Every miracle is meant to point to the person of Jesus Christ. And even as they start healing, healing this person, it's never meant to look at them. It's only meant to look at Jesus. And this is so crucial. Does God still heal? Can he still heal? Sure, absolutely. Is every healing that happens pointing to Jesus? It should. If it doesn't, it's not an authentic miracle according to scripture. This miracle is meant to point people to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why they're doing this. This is all in line with the things that Jesus has done. This is all in line with the person of who Jesus is. This is to authenticate that Jesus is the one you need to have faith in, not some person or not some reaction. Jesus alone has the, the ability to heal us. So the first direction that it points us is to the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the second place that the miracles point. They point inward to the heart. And so what what Peter doesn't do in this moment is he doesn't start a healing ministry in regard to what what it looks like to have miracles in your life. He takes this opportunity of the miracle to point to the real message. He points this, he takes this opportunity of a miracle to point to where our faith should be directed. He says this in verse 13, the God of Abraham, 
The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What's happening historically is that they're in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem a little over a month after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead. For over a period of 40 days, Jesus had been talking to the disciples. And so all of these events of Jesus' life Death and resurrection were in these people's minds. And the the gospel first moved to the the people of Jerusalem. That's the starting point of the book of Acts. And so all of these people were very familiar with these events. Everyone there knew that Jesus lived and that Jesus died. They were all familiar with these events. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, even though Pilate wanted to release him. In the events in in history, what had happened was, was Jesus was brought before the people and they had an opportunity to release Barabbas. Barabbas or release Jesus. And they said, give us Barabbas, who was a murderer and an insurrectionist, and crucify Jesus. And so they were all familiar with these events. They knew exactly what happened. And Peter says, look, you killed the righteous one, verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Peter points to the resurrection. He points everyone, not to the miracle of this healing, but to the reality of the resurrection. And here's why. He says, and by, na- by the name and faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you have seen and know. He says, what's needed for everyone is an internal evaluation, is an internal look, not just at the external evidence, but an internal evaluation. Verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but God foretold by his mouth by all of his prophets that the Christ would suffer and he thus, and thus be fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He says, you've acted in ignorance, meaning you didn't know that you were crucifying the author of life and God's gonna forgive you. What's so fascinating to me as I've studied this is that he doesn't point back to the miracle. He doesn't point back to the healing. He says, I want you to look at your interior. I want you to look at your sin. He said, because that's the real issue. The real issue for all of us that all of us face isn't the fact that we need healthy bodies. And it's easy for me to say that as one with a healthy body. And, and in fact, as I even say that, I, 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 that's, that's even hard, as I was praying and preparing, I'm like, can I even say that? I mean, I have a healthy body. I, I'm speaking from a very different perspective than a lot of people in the world. But, but what Peter seems to be saying is that's not the biggest issue. I mean, if healthy bodies were the biggest issue, that's what he would do next. He would say, hey, so all of you line up. If you got a headache, you got a backache, whatever your issue is, come on up and I will heal those things. But that's not what he does. He says, he points points them to Jesus and he says, and you need to repent of your sins. And the reason for that is this, is that the biggest issue that the world faces is not an issue of health which is difficult to say during a pandemic, but it's an issue of sin. 
The biggest issue that the world faces isn't an issue of health, but an issue of sin. And no amount of wealth and no amount of health will really be able to address the deepest issues of our hearts and lives. No issue of health or no issue of wealth will be able to hit the deepest issues of our life. There's an article that came out um, a couple years ago in 2018, and the title of the article is this, The Dark Reasons Why So Many Rich People Are Miserable Human Beings. It says this, it's not just adults that are impacted by this phenomenon, meaning wealthy people. Children who come from affluent families are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than those from less affluent families. Psychologist Elizabeth Lombardo, who studied the high net worth of families for her new book, From Entitled to Intention, Raising Purpose-Driven Children, calls this quest of more and more the treadmill effect. We think that external things we buy will bring us happiness, but then we get them and we wonder, what's next? She explains, the next thing has to be bigger and better than, than what we had before and what other people have around us, she adds, and what ends up happening in this treadmill of cycle is that they never become happy and become more and more miserable. The most wealthy among us are not the most happiest among us. And there's a reason for that. Because the biggest issues of the world we face won't be fixed primarily through financial means or health. And if those were the biggest needs, that's what Jesus would fix. But in Mark chapter seven, Jesus says he addresses the real, the root issue of all of us. Mark seven twenty one says this, for from within, out of our heart, the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, come sexual morality, come theft, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things come from within and they defile a person. See, all the biggest issues that our world faces come from an interior, interior heart problem, not an exterior problem. All I have to do is look at my kids and I can see this clearly. My kids are well-fed, well-clothed, and I love them because I'm an amazing daddy, right? I feed them and they sleep and they're great, right? But if I just leave them alone for 10 minutes upstairs in our home, it is not the beacon of pleasantries and hope, right? That's not what happens. I leave them up, in the, up there for 10 minutes and what happens? Someone takes something from someone else, someone yells at someone else and they start freaking out and I'm just like, kids, you're insane. Stop, stop, why? Because even though they have every toy they need, even though they are well-fed, they are not a joy to be around when they are left alone, why? Because there's something in here that erupts out there. That's what Jesus is saying. The biggest issues our world faces, the biggest problems our nation faces, the biggest problems our world faces isn't primarily about these things. It's, it's this internal thing that makes me hoard what I have and makes me push you away. It's, it's these things that cause all of our deepest problems. And, 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 and I even I say that and you're like, well, Kevin, that's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to say. If you're healthy and financially okay, what about those people that aren't? What about those people that deal with, with deep poverty? 
or those people that deal with deep, long-lasting unhealing, would those people say the same thing? Well, I can't pretend to speak for every one of those people, but I can speak from one. There's a woman named um, Johnny Erickson Tata, and I just want to read a little bit of her story for you. She says this, um, in an excerpt in a book called Lost and Found, How Jesus Helped Us Discover Our True Selves. She says this, for as long as I can remember, I was into sports, whether racking up swing medals, slamming a tennis ball with my wicked backhand, or being voted best athlete in my senior class. I had found my niche, my life. I was an athlete, and it was, had defined everything about me, even the major I planned to declare in college. But athleticism can push a person too far. Only a month after high school graduation, I broke my neck while attempting an inward pike dive um, off a raft into the shallows of the Chesapeake Bay. I had assumed I would pull out of the pike in time, but when my head crunched against the sandy bottom, my arms and legs went limp. When they pulled my paralyzed body on shore, I kept thinking, what a stupid dive. Why did I do it? Months later, when the permanency of my paralysis began to sink in, I felt my life was over. I was a Christian back then, but life in Christ didn't define who I was. True, I understood I was a new creation with a new heart, at least in theory, but I didn't live like it. So after my accident, I dug into my Bible for help, hoping that Jesus would give me back all that I had lost. I wanted, I needed my body back. And it says that she began reading in the scriptures. She read, in particular, Luke 5, where it talks about Jesus healing this paralyzed man. And so that became her prayer week after week. Lord, will you heal me just in this moment? Will you heal me? Will you heal me? And God didn't. She goes on to say, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from our sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. She said, I reread Luke 5, where Jesus healed the paralyzed man and lowered by his friends through a roof. This time I studied the verses I had ignored. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But, I want, but you want to know that the Son of Man has authority in life to forgive sins, so he healed the paralyzed man. I tell you, get up and walk. Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because and only because he had the authority as the son of God to forgive sins. It was this point that he wanted to make for the Pharisees. See, he heals to show that he has the greatest healing we need. He heals because the biggest issues of our lives are sin issues. She goes on to say, for him, healing withered legs would take more, no more effort than setting the stars and moon into motion. For Jesus, it's all merely finger work. 
But when it comes to forgiving sin, it was no easy effort from our Savior. Our redemption required blood and the strong arm of salvation. So for the past 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I needed to be healed. Does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in this broken world, it's, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for miraculous physical healing was, has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, Increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase in faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It is all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. These are words that I could never say, but I'm so thankful for this woman who learned this lesson for me. And for us. Could God heal all of the pains we're currently facing? Sure. But every healing this side of heaven is temporary. As I was talking with my son driving in the car, um, we started talking about this interaction he had had with his friend at school. And, and he's asking, uh, they say all these things are fairy tales, but we believe they're true, right, Dad? And, and I'm like, yes, we believe that they're true. And then he asked the second question, okay, daddy, what, what happens to all those people that are healed in the Bible? And I said, well, he's like, where are they? And I'm like, well, they're dead. Every healing, this side of heaven is temporary. Every healing. And so every miraculous moment, this side of, of what God is bringing is a temporary relief. But, but it's a pointing, it's a pointing, it's a picture of, of the full restoration that Jesus promises. Every healing this side of heaven is temporary, but there is a, a, a full restoration of all things at the end of history. And that's what Peter points to. See, the, the, the reality of miracles point is two things. One, to the person of Jesus Christ. They point us upward. Secondly, they point inward that, that there's a deep sin that has to be dealt with. I, I don't love God. I, I don't love people. I need healing in the deepest parts of me. And the third place miracles point is forward to the restoration to the hope that we all hope to find. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive, Jesus, until the restoring of all things about which God spoke about long ago. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died in our place for our sins. He was resurrected. He prepared these men to go preach this gospel. Hey, Jesus is alive. He can heal. He is restoring all things. And he is up in heaven waiting for the restoration of all things. He is, he is waiting until that moment when he will come again and restore everything that is broken. What you may not know about this particular miracle is that it was entirely pointing forward to the coming Messiah. Um, any Jewish person reading this text would have known Isaiah 35 in their own mind. Isaiah 35 says this, when the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, 
And then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. The Jewish people knew that when the Messiah comes, there's gonna be a restoration of everything that was broken. And so many of us, as we see miracles, we see them as a suspension of the natural order. But that's not true. Every miracle in scripture is pointing to the restoration of the natural order. See, the world is not supposed to be like this. The world is not supposed to be broken. And look in your heart, you would say, I don't want pain like this. I don't want the world to be broken like this. I would like the blind to see. I would like the lame to walk. I would want the world to be that way. And, and all of those desires are a little pointing within your heart to say, the world isn't meant to be this way. And what Peter points to in this moment is, yes, you're, you're in the middle of a larger story of creation. God created the world beautiful, perfect, without, without brokenness. And then there was a fall, there was a brokenness when sin entered the world, when we tried to live our lives our own way and do our own thing, and there was a brokenness. And then he brought redemption through the person of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and at the end of time, there will be a recreation, a restoration of everything. There will be a moment when every tear is wiped away and every broken thing will be set right. And that's really the hope. Every miracle this side of heaven will be temporary in nature, but every miracle is meant to point to a future when God will restore everything, when there won't be any more tears or sickness or pain or death. All of those will be done away when he restores everything. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, has a great statement on this. He says, the most intuitive thing we can say, however, is about the biblical purpose of miracles is that they lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe, to wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress or coerce. You never see him saying something like, see that tree over there? Watch me make it burst into flames. (laughs) Instead, he uses miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Why? You ever wonder that? Why, why did Jesus not skywrite, right? Like, I am God, right? Why didn't he do that back then, right? He could have. Why, why didn't he just like, just like make these random moments all over the poem, like, watch me levitate, watch me float. Why, why did he not use miracles in that way? It's because the miracles are meant to point to a restoration of life, to restoration of how things were supposed to work. He goes on to say, we modern people think of miracles as the suspensions of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it was wrong and heal the world of its brokenness. His miracles are not just proofs that he has the power, but also the wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. That's the purpose of the miracles. Not to point to life on this earth, although we do wanna help those who are hurting in this earth. We do wanna help financially and physically in every way that we can. But we know that every little fix there is temporary and not complete. Every fix there staves off the pain but doesn't give people the full restoration that they long for. And that's why Peter says he's pointing forward to a time when Jesus will restore all things and he's waiting 
And Moses promised, hey, there's a prophet like this coming. And he says, now this message is for you. Every one of you return. Every one of you be restored. And right now we're in that in-between period. So can God still heal today? Absolutely. Does God always heal in the way that we want? Sadly not. Is there a hope of a restoration of everyone in Christ? Yes. And every miracle you see, everything that happens in scripture and everything that you see in your life is meant to point you to the person of Jesus Christ, point you upward. It's to point you inward. Hey, there's sin within. We're not who we need to be. It's to point you forward. God will restore every broken thing in this world. And he has demonstrated he has the power through the healings in scripture, through the healings we see, and his resurrection from the dead. In that, you can have hope. So I don't know where you are this morning, but for some of you, you've actually never really directed your eyes upwards. In fact, many of you are praying for God to do something, but all of that is about you. It's about what I want for my life. It's about what what I see are my needs and what my healing is. But that's, that's not the true healing that you need. The first thing for all of us is, are our eyes really focused on Jesus? Are they focused down here on something else? And what I'm really doing is just using Jesus to give me what I really want here. God in his grace won't do that. He's not your divine slot machine. You don't pay in money through prayer and pull the lever and hope he pays out. That's not how Jesus works. We come on our knees to the person of Jesus Christ and every miracle points to a deeper healing you need. And so some of you, you, there are physical healings that you want to have prayed for and we will pray for those and we believe that God can heal. And so our prayer team is gonna come forward now and so if there's a physical need that you have that you would like prayer for, we are going to pray for it and we believe in the God who can heal and he might and we believe it and so we're gonna pray for it. For others of you, it's the second issue, that there's really a deeper sin within you that you haven't dealt with. And it's that same sin that lasts as a cycle in your heart. It's why you get into the same arguments that you do. It's why you have the same frustrations that you do. It's that same sin cycle that you're locked in, just like the nation of Israel. And so for those of you that are locked in sin, it's time to look up to Jesus and receive forgiveness from him. And as he gives forgiveness to you, it gives you the power to forgive those who have wronged you. There's a sin issue that we have to deal with first. Thirdly, there's some of you that are really struggling in this place. The third place to point is to hope. For those of you that are kind of feeling like a wilted hope, like maybe your hope is even a little bit lost. We wanna pray alongside you to restore your hope. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and what he is bringing. So or the band is gonna come up. Please respond in prayer. Let me pray for us now. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Jesus, that you lived a perfect life that you died the death we deserve. You paid for all of our sins completely and fully.
And Lord, thank you that you restore all things. And so Lord, I pray this morning that there, for the issues that we're facing in our own lives, whether it's desire for physical healing. So Lord, those in that space, I pray that they would come forward and receive prayer and the comfort of the community. And Lord, by your grace, I pray that, that they would be healed by the power of your spirit and to the glory of your name, no other name. And Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with sin. For those of us caught in the same cycle of sin, we, we do the same things, we make the same mistakes, we're, we're lost. I pray that we would come forward and receive forgiveness, first of all, in the name of Jesus Christ, who forgives us of every one of our sins. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have lost hope. Lord, because our lives hasn't turned out quite how we wanted or the details of life haven't landed quite where we wanted them to land. Lord, I pray that we would stop hoping in the details and the things of this world, but our hope would be firmly fixed on you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that times of refreshing would start today. That in your presence is fullness of joy. And Lord, you say this is eternal life. That you know the Son whom you sent. And so, Lord, I pray that as we know the Son, as we know you, Jesus, you would refresh our hearts. So, Lord, I lift up this time of prayer and response. Guide our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.